This is episode 489 of the Leaving Laodicea broadcast, and my name is Steve McCraney. When you survey contemporary preaching today and compare it to the content of the message of Jesus and his disciples found in the New Testament, you will clearly see there's something glaringly missing. Jesus and his disciples and the early church preached about the kingdom of God almost exclusively. And we preach about getting our felt needs met by the Lord, how he's going to hold us or calm us or make our life better in this world. Really? But we never see that message preached in the Bible. I wonder why that is. Join us today as we look at the message of the forgotten gospel of the kingdom of God and in the process, learn how to leave Laodicea behind. You know, every Sunday before we begin, I've got a verse that I put up in larger text on the um, PowerPoint behind me uh, that when you come in, you can kind of see, it kind of gives an idea of what we're talking about here. This is Acts chapter 1, verse 3, and it's just beginning the story of the early church. Luke says this, and we're going to talk more about this in detail. He says, the former account I made, O Theopolis, of course, uh, that former account was the book of Luke, but in the book of Luke, he called him most excellent Theopolis. In other words, it's a very formal phrase. Here it's just, O Theopolis. You know, it's Sir, President, whoever you are, Mr. But here it's Bob. It's just a a more common name. So the assumption is that possibly by the time Luke wrote his first letter to Theopolis, and again, Nobody knows really the reason of these letters. People believe that they were possibly trial documents for the Apostle Paul and his defense in Rome, and Theopolis was there compiling all these together, and Luke was given an orderly account of everything about not only the the gospel, but also the church afterwards in the life of Paul. He says, the former account I made, O Theopolis, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, doing first, then teaching until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during the 40 days and speaking. Well, what was Jesus speaking about? What was his message to them? What was his dialogue, his conversation. What did he want to tell his disciples during the 40 days before, uh, after his resurrection to his ascension? What was most important to him? And we find this phrase, speaking to him of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Okay. I don't even know what that means. So I look it up on Blue Letter Bible or a Google search it, or I'll go to some really in-depth commentary, and they'll say the kingdom of God is the sphere of God's sovereignty and his reign over all the earth. Okay. Is there anything more to it than that? And we would assume not, because none of us have lived under a king. We've lived under a representative government, supposedly a republic. We, we don't know what it's like to have a single person, a king, have total control over everything in our life. They did. And so it's this kingdom of God. And he begins, he begins 
the book of Acts talking about the message Jesus communicated about the kingdom of God. So let's take a step back. Right now we live in unprecedented times within the church. What are we going to do? How bright is our light going to shine? We may be facing, for the first time, at least in my lifetime, we may be facing persecution. We may lose our jobs. We may be deplatformed. We may not have an ability to speak. It may cost us something to be a believer. When that's happened to other countries, the fluff burns off the name-only Christians, those that come because it's a social construct, you know, they, they don't come anymore. They don't really care. But the true church, as I showed you a video of it last week, the true church gets together and they become even stronger. And maybe that's what the Lord is doing here. But one of the things that we can learn about church today and maybe church in the future is how we're to respond when the heat of persecution is dialed up because we've got a book here in the scripture, the book of Acts, that shows them how they responded under persecution without all the advantages that we have. We have churches on every street corner. They didn't. We have Bibles and commentaries and 2,000 years of church history of things we did well and things we didn't do well. They didn't. We have the words of Jesus recorded for us in Scripture. They were just going by what other people said and heard and remembered because what's happening in the book of Acts happens, at least in the first part of the book, before the gospel accounts were even penned. And yet they turn the world upside down. I mean, what can we learn about church from just studying the book of Acts? And I promise you that you'll be amazed at this. You'll be and I don't use the word shocked, but you'll be shocked by all the truth that's here just laying out on the surface. I mean, why did God even include this book in the canon of Scripture? It's really simple. He wanted us to see what church is about. He wanted us to see how church is supposed to be manifested. He gave us a template. He gave us a, um, an example of a church in a hostile environment that flourished that absolutely flourish, because churches should grow and flourish, and Christians should share their faith with other people, and the Holy Spirit moves among them in such a way that lost people get saved, and that's the way it's designed to be. And if it's not that way, it's not because the Holy Spirit no longer moves like he used to, it's usually because there's something with us. Maybe we become too comfortable, maybe we become too lackadaisical, maybe we become too apathetic. I don't know about your Bible, but my Bible says the Acts of the Apostles. Your Bible starts out that way? The Acts of the Apostles. Well, not really. I mean, in the first part of the book, you've got Peter. Occasionally, John's hanging with him when it comes to a couple persecutions, but Peter's the focus in the early part of the book as we're dealing with Jerusalem. Philip shows up occasionally in two chapters. After that, you've got the Apostle Paul, and pretty much everything flows from there. So it's not like the act of all the apostles going out and turning the world upside down. It's the act of a handful of apostles. But what it really should probably say is acts of the Holy Spirit, because that's exactly what's happening here. The Holy Spirit is moving. The Holy Spirit is, pro is in the center of all their preaching. And I shared that with you last week. Watch what happens to a church empowered by the Holy Spirit that even exists in hostile environment. Watch what happens. There's never an indication in the book of Acts that the church hunkered down, 
We're afraid, even though persecution broke out. There's never an indication that fear, although they had plenty to be fearful about, losing their fortune and even their lives like Stephen, and who knows how many people died under Paul's persecution. There's never an indication the church took a step back. The church consolidated itself. The church says, this is really too tough. Let's get in our little holy huddles. Let's just protect ourselves and insulate ourselves from the world because they're bad out there and we're good and we don't want their darkness to infect our light. Instead, Jesus said that they're the gates of Hades. What they're doing trying to protect themselves from the light of Christ will not prevail against us. Somehow, in the West, at least, we've lost that. Watch this. Acts chapter 2, early church, 3,000 people come to faith in Christ. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple, which is the hotbed of persecution, and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added, that's a mathematical term, one plus one equals two, added to the church daily those who were being saved. Daily. When does that happen in America? Well, we had a revival service and, you know, 20 people came down to the front and seven of those gave their faith to Christ and two got baptized and hallelujah, praise the Lord. Next year, we're going to bring another evangelist in, have another revival service and maybe four people will get saved. The Lord was adding daily to the church those who were being saved, and the evangelistic message was not just primarily being carried out by the 120. Everybody who got overwhelmed with what God had done for them was just sharing about what they know. Acts chapter 6. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples, we're not adding anymore, multiplied but not just multiplied two times two, but multiplied greatly in the center of persecution in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests now, oh my goodness, the Jewish priests were obedient to the faith. Maybe, maybe that's the key. Maybe it's obedience. Maybe when we follow God's word and we're empowered by his Holy Spirit and we don't grieve the Holy Spirit by living our own carnal lives, maybe that's one of the things that caused the church to explode. Acts chapter 9. This is when they sent Paul away. And the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit... They were again multiplied. Acts chapter 12. This is, of course, when, uh, well, you'll remember the story as we read it. Then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten with worms and died. And even when something like that happened, but the word of God, in spite of that, grew and multiplied. Acts chapter 16, verse 5. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. I mean, this is the prototype. This is how church is supposed to function. This is a normal church. We think, well, that's a super normal church. That's a church in revival. No, it's, this, is, this is the prototype that God has laid out for us when the Holy Spirit moves. We, I think, have just become satisfied with trinkets and toys and crumbs rather than seeing the power in the Holy Spirit that lives in us. 
Acts chapter 19. Also, many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. Talk about sanctification and a revival taking place. And they counted up the value of them and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. They're burning their, their DVDs they shouldn't watch. They're burning their alcohol and their drugs and, and anything that would hinder their relationship with Christ. So the word of the Lord grew mightily. And now it says it prevailed. It grew mightily and won. It grew mightily and was victorious. Acts 28, Paul is in prison, living in his own house now. He's in like house arrest, and it says he's in Rome. Then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house, and he received all who came to him. He wasn't hindered. Everybody that came to him, he shared a message with them, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ without confidence no one preventing him. Paul now, everyone that came to visit him is preaching to them this kingdom of God thing. I mean, how does that even work? So if we're going to do a flyover. And if we do a flyover, we pretty much have three sections of the New Testament. We've got the Gospels. We've got the book of Acts. Paul's letters pretty much deal with theology of the church. And then we close it with the book of Revelation. And in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, deal with the church. It outlines for us church history. We've already looked at that. And so the Gospel account, if you really want to sum it up, the Gospel account, and I'm going to show you this today, is the message of the kingdom. We think the gospel is telling somebody to ask Jesus into their heart so they can have eternal life and their sins are forgiven and live forever with him. But that wasn't the primary message of Christ at that time. His message in the early church message was about there's a kingdom here and the king is coming and being in allegiance to the king, inheriting the kingdom, being a son of the king implies all those things that we preach, but we never talk about obedience to a king. The book of Acts moves from the message about the kingdom to the church, which is supposed to be the physical manifestation of the kingdom on earth. And the book of Revelation takes us from the church to the actual kingdom of God, where he comes on earth and rules and reigns for a thousand years. And we flippantly say, and yet worse Christians will rule and reign with him. I think next week you'll be surprised that that promise isn't to everyone. But it needs to be for us. So let's look at this message of the kingdom. I want you, I want you to just look at sometimes how we miss this truth, even though it's laid out for us in Scripture. I am only going to look at the book of Matthew. You will find these same accounts in the book of Mark and Luke and John, but I'm only going to look at Matthew. John the Baptist had a message, and then Jesus followed him. John the Baptist's message we find in Matthew 3, 2, and Jesus' first begin to preach a chapter later in Matthew 4, verse 17. Here is John the Baptist's message. Repent. Why should I repent? Why should I get right with God? Why should I ask forgiveness of my sins? Because the kingdom of heaven is imminent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus began preaching. And his message was identical. He wasn't copying John. They both had the same message. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
What we focus on is repent, and we miss the fact that the crux of their message, the reason why they should repent, is because this kingdom, this thing we have a hard time understanding that we really don't preach much about today or or really can grasp our mind around it, especially living in a democratic government in the West, is this king is coming. The king is here, and his kingdom is imminent, and we need to prepare ourselves to meet our king. Jesus began preaching, and look at his message. He preached a message, and then he gave signs to show us what living in his kingdom is all about. Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, right before the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus went about all Galilee teaching in their synagogues, and preaching, what? The gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom. And then he manifested what life is like in that kingdom, and healing all kind of sickness and all kind of diseases among the people, because God our King is coming. Christ is here preaching the good news that God is coming, setting up his kingdom. His kingdom is here, and you can be part of his kingdom. You will find that you can not only enter his kingdom, but you can inherit the kingdom as a son of the king. What is this kingdom about, Jesus? Well, I'll show you. I'll show you what life is like in the kingdom. I'm going to present three chapters for you in the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus is going to tell us what life is like in the kingdom. It's not like life is like in this world. In this world, somebody punches you, you punch them back. They send one of yours to the hospital, you send one of theirs to the morgue. We don't don't lay down for anybody. We don't surrender to anybody. But life in the kingdom is different. Somebody slaps you, you turn them the the other cheek. Somebody sues you to take something of yours, you give them more. You forgive those people who malign you. You do things that go contrary to the flesh. But it doesn't bother us because we have a king that we serve who's sovereign and loving and takes care of us. Look at what he says here. First, in the kingdom, there's humility and brokenness, not pride and arrogance. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? Because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They will possess the kingdom of heaven. We find that if we act like Jesus, that we're going to face persecution. Being light in darkness, something that the church doesn't really want to do because we don't want to face persecution from the world. And so therefore, he says in Again, in the Beatitudes, chapter 5, verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Again, why? Because they will possess this kingdom of heaven. So what does this mean? And if I do enter into the kingdom of heaven, if I do have an audience with the king, if I am ruled by a king and not who I want to be ruled by, how important is obedience? Same chapter, verse 19. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least, the least of these commandments, and then is so arrogant to teach others to do the same, that he will be called least. Where? In the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does these things and teaches others to do also, he shall be called great. In this kingdom, this kingdom that Christ is bringing, that the Jews The people he's listening to, his disciples, and even you and I today can't even get our mind around what this means. So how do you enter the kingdom of heaven? 
Well, it's the righteousness that we have. It's the righteousness that comes from Christ. And it's the inward righteousness that is even better than the most righteous person who lives according to the flesh, following the law. Next verse. For I say to you that unless your righteousness, the spiritual fruits that Susan quoted today, exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter what? Eternal life? Enter into a, a, your best life now? Enter into good things? that No, in fact, to this kingdom of heaven. And nobody asked him, what does that mean? Well, what is this kingdom all about? I don't understand. When he prayed, when he taught us how to pray, it begins and ends with the kingdom. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The end of that, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. So how important is it to enter the kingdom? He tells us that in verse number six. But seek first, what, a righteous life? They seek first to go to church all the time? Seek first to tithe 20%? Seek first, no, seek first the kingdom the kingdom of God and his righteousness that comes from that and all these things, what you're going to wear, live, eat, will be added unto you. Again, obedience in the kingdom towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Not everyone who comes to church on Sunday, not everyone who claims an allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ, not everyone who says with their mouth, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow, it's different than inheriting. Enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, who will? The one who lives an obedient life, who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven. So, Jesus, you began your ministry. You gave three chapters on a Sermon on the Mount and told us what life is like in the kingdom. Then right after that, you started teaching again. And what did you teach? Chapter 9. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom again, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. All right, Lord, I'm following you as a disciple, and um, I, I, I need to learn what this means. So you're going to send us out two by two into the countryside, and you're going to tell us the message we need to preach. What message do you want us to preach? Come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Ask him into your heart. You know, uh, repent. I mean, what message? How can you sum all this up? I want you to preach the exact message I'm preaching. And as you go, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Then I want you to manifest that kingdom in front of them. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. You've seen that happen in church lately? Freely you have received, freely give. I want you to manifest the kingdom. And then when the Jews rejected Christ, called him Beelzebub, and says he gets his power from Satan, he began to change his message and began to preach in parables, and he preached in parables just so his disciples would understand this hidden truth, and the other people will not. He says then, and the disciples came to him and said, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered, because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. 
It's always about a kingdom. But to them, it has not been granted. And so from that point on, almost every parable he gives them is an example or a description of the kingdom. He never says, let me tell you how to live your best life now. Let me tell you how to live a godly life. Let me tell you about this. No, I want to describe to you what I'm offering you. I want to describe to you this kingdom. Here's the... um, Here's an explanation of the parable of the sower. When anyone hears, what? The gospel message? Yeah. The gospel message is the word of the kingdom that has a king, a sovereign, and doesn't understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what is sown in his heart. This is he who received the seed by the wayside. And he put forth another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till all was leavened. He never deals with any other issue of a spiritual life other than the kingdom. Again, the kingdom is like a treasure, hidden in a field which a man found and hid, and for joy goes and sells all that he has to buy that field. The kingdom of heaven is like a a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, the kingdom, he sold all that he had to buy it. The kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet, which is cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind, which when it is full, they drew to shore. And they sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but threw the bad away. The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. Another parable, the kingdom of heaven is like in the ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. The kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling on a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. You get the point? This is just Matthew. Jesus spent almost his entire time with his disciples teaching them about a kingdom and a king that we hardly ever think about in church today because we're so busy building our own kingdoms and our own businesses and our own worlds and doing the things that we want to do and adding Christ to us to sprinkle and season our life and not realizing that we belong lock, stock, and barrel to our king. And our king is coming and he's setting up his kingdom on earth for a thousand years. And you, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your savior and king, will enter that kingdom. But not everyone who enters that kingdom, and we'll talk about this next week, inherits the kingdom. There's something different there. So um, what should we be preaching? What message should the church be preaching? Well, here's the prophetic passage from Matthew chapter 24, where Jesus is laying out what's going to happen at the end time. And note what he says here. And what? And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Do we preach as a church the gospel of the kingdom? 
Do we even understand what the gospel of the kingdom is? Because it deals with servitude. It deals with submission. It deals with bending your knee to the king. So how did the early church respond to this compared to the kind of messages we preach? Well, let's look. Acts chapter 12. But when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, the king, both men and women, were baptized. That's how Luke sums up Philip's message. Acts chapter 19. Um, and he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning these things. Not the Lord, or the, whether Jesus was actually the Messiah, but the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. In Acts chapter 20, Paul is giving his farewell address to the elders at Ephesus, and he's gathered them together, and he's recounting to them his ministry before he leaves. And look what he says here. And indeed, I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Everything is about the kingdom. Again, verse I shared with you earlier, Paul preaching to them, solemnly testifying the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom? I mean, obviously it was something that was the centerpiece of Jesus' teaching. Matter of fact, every message that he proclaimed, if you summed up what the, the content of that message was, it was always about the kingdom. And, and the manifestations of the kingdom he gave to his disciples when he sent them out, heal the sick, raise the dead, stuff of that nature that we don't even address anymore. And, and so therefore, there's this focus on this kingdom as a king, this time that is coming when Christ comes back to rule and reign on the earth, where he vanquishes the usurper, Satan, puts him bound for almost a thousand years until the end of that and sets up what it was like in the Garden of Eden. This is what life would have been like if you hadn't sinned. And we have a tendency of just not even thinking about that and our place in his kingdom. And then he talks about receiving the kingdom as an inheritance. We won't turn to it for time, but if you look at Matthew chapter 31 through 46, Jesus is basically saying, that these people come to him and say, Lord, we've done all these wonderful things. And he says, depart from me. And others, Lord, we've done these things and believe all these things. And he says, enter into my kingdom. And the ones that he cast out, he said, well, what is the deal? I don't, I don't understand. And the life that's manifested there is this life of sanctification. We've taken care of the sick. We've you know, done all these, the, visited people in prison. We've done all the things that you've told us to do as a member of your kingdom. And those people who didn't do that were cast away. And Jesus makes this phrase. There's elsewhere in scripture, he talks about it. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, the sheep, come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom. You inherit as a son of the king, the kingdom that was prepared for you. Boy, this sounds like Ephesians, doesn't it? About your salvation that was prepared for you when in the sovereignty of God from the foundation of the world. We'll deal more with, more with this next week. This kingdom 
This unbelievable kingdom that was the centerpiece of Christ's preaching is what the early church preached. And when you're summarizing the message, what is the message of this church? Well, overall, if you put all these individual messages together, the standard theme is about Christ and his kingdom. Most messages today are about you and me and our felt needs. What we need, what we want, what makes us feel better. A lot of the songs that we sing are about our felt needs rather than exalting our king and his kingdom. I'm going to ask you a couple questions here that we will begin answering next week. Is there a difference in Scripture between entering the kingdom and inheriting the kingdom? Entering the kingdom as a citizen of the kingdom and inheriting the kingdom as a son of the king. As you will see next week, apparently in Scripture, there is. And it is sobering, sobering truth. It's the difference between the Laodicean life or the abundant life that Jesus talked about. I mean, think, if this was an earthly kingdom, is there a difference between someone just entering into the kingdom to sell their wares or to go to their own home or to eat dinner or inheriting the kingdom as a son of the king? Absolutely. And it works exactly the same way with the kingdom of God. Does inheriting the kingdom, this is a question we'll deal with next week, have anything to do with the life we live on earth? Does inheriting the kingdom is it just this blanket deal where, you know, it doesn't matter how you live, you can do what you want, just as long as you got your, you know, your entrance card punched, you're okay? Or does God honor those who are faithful to him more than he honors those that, he, that are not? Oh, we honor those who are more faithful in a business. We give them raises, we give them promotions than those that are not. But I guess God isn't as wise as we are when it comes to stuff like that. There's parables where he hands out certain amount of, of talents. You have 10, you have five, you have one. And then I'm going to honor you or not honor you what you have done with what I have given. Not the same gift, but what you've done with what I have given. And the one who didn't wasn't honored at all. Do you remember? Could it possibly be that God sometimes manages his kingdom, rewarding faithfulness? sold out commitment to him, not honoring callousness to the bordering on apostasy like we do? Or do we believe God is like our culture today where everybody gets a prize? Everybody's a winner because we don't want to feel bad for anybody. You know what I mean? And so if that's true, true, is there anywhere in Scripture dealing with the church that we can see, and again, we're going to develop this more next week and the week after, that we can see conditions to receive some incredible inheritances that aren't designed for everyone? And the answer is yes. We find that in the book of Revelation. I'm going to close by just going through these quickly. These are the end of each letter to the church in the book of Revelation. I want you to send seven letters out to the seven churches in Asia Minor. And as we've talked about, these churches lay out for us church history, perfect church history. 
Exact order. First couple of these, you've got he that has an ear to hear before the promise to the overcomer. Last four of these, or last four of these, you've got that reversed. There's a reason for that, and we'll talk about that as we go through these. Look what it says here. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church as, plural. What is he saying? To him who overcomes, him who overcomes, I will give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Okay, question I have. Is this promise made to everyone? To him who overcomes and everybody else, just come on. Is that what the scripture says? Or is this a promise to a select group of people that have accomplished something, that have overcome something, that have used him to live victoriously somewhere, whatever that word means? Or is this promise what it really says in scripture, that it is just given to someone who overcomes, what we call the overcomers? Next letter, Smyrna. He has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church is. To he who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Again, is this promise to everyone? I mean, look at the text. Is it? Or is this promise only to those who overcome? And if it is, what in the world does it mean to be an overcomer? How do you qualify to be an overcomer? What are you overcoming? I mean, Christ talked about overcoming some things. Paul talked about overcoming some things. Is there a truth here that we've missed? Because everybody gets a prize. Everybody's equal. Everybody just, just come on. It doesn't matter. Because that's just the kind of God that we serve that doesn't want anyone to be offended. Pergamos, third letter. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes... I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and a stone, uh, and on, it, on the stone a new name written on which no one knows except him who receives it. So those who overcome get a white stone with a special name Christ gives, and no one knows that name except me or you or those people who overcome and the one who receives the stone. Again, is this for everybody, or is this just for the overcomers? Thyatira. Now all of a sudden, the, the, he that has an ear is at the bottom of this. Watch the exclusivity here. And he who overcomes and keeps my works. Okay, that's shedding a little more light on what maybe being an overcomer means. And keeps my works. Not necessarily my word, but it's deeper than that. And how long do we keep that? How long do we stay faithful? How committed are we to you until the end? Watch this. To him, him, not everyone, to him I will give power over the nations. And then Christ lays out for us the power that he has from the Psalms. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like a potter's vessel. That's the power that Christ has. And I also, and as I also have received from my Father, I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Sardis. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. Everybody? Or just he who overcomes? 
and I will not blot out his name from the book of life. Well, that's scary. I didn't think our names got blotted out of the book of life. I thought maybe he wrote our names in the book of life, but now it's something else is happening here. But he says, I will confess his name before my fathers and his angels. Is this for you? Is he that has an ear? Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Philadelphia. He who overcomes, I will make him, him. It's almost an individual thing. It's not everybody, but him, a pillar in the temple of my God. And he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. He has an ear to hear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. question we need to ask ourselves Simple question. We'll find out what all this stuff means later. Are these promises meant for everyone? Or is there a subclass of people, qualifications that have to be met to overcome something by Christ? Laodicea, to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. As I also overcame and sat down on my father's throne. Again, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So what does it mean to be an overcomer? We're going to find that out next week and the weeks that follow. Because I don't know about you, but I would like these promises. Would you like these promises? And these are promises that were given to the various church ages through the history of the church. And, and, and how does being an overcomer relate to the kingdom of God? Does it relate to the entrance in the kingdom of God? Or does it relate to the inheriting of the kingdom of God. Now listen very carefully. If this is like most churches, there are some of you in here that aren't saved. There are some of you in here that have, like I had for so many years, a kind of understanding about the things of God, and my parents were saved, and they kept bringing me to church, and I, you know, I'm doing the right things, I know the scripture verses, and, and all that kind of stuff, but nevertheless, Christ has not taken up residence in my life. The Holy Spirit doesn't inhabit me. I am not saved. I am outside the benefits of being a child of the king. Entrance into the kingdom is very, very simple. It comes with your believing faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is not something your parents can do for you. It is not something I can do for you. It's not something anyone can do for you but you. And it is something that is offered to each of us irrespective of how bad we have failed in the past. And I, more than anyone, thank the Lord for that doesn't matter what your life is like, doesn't matter how dirty your life is, doesn't matter how bad you messed up, you don't have to make yourself better to come to him. He accepts us as we are. I love in Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present yourselves, your bodies, as a living sacrifice, holy, I'm not holy, I will make you holy, acceptable unto God. He accepts us as we are. It is more than a mental assent to some historical facts. 
It's more than just believing Jesus Christ died on the cross and he, let me see, he, uh, he was buried and then I think he raised from the dead in two days, three, three, I think it's three days, three days, and then he walked around for like over a month and then he ascended up into heaven and I think they told me that he's seated at the right hand of the Father and he's coming again in power to set up his kingdom is why he's coming. And do you believe those facts? Sure, I believe those facts. I believe all that kind of stuff as I've shared with you before, just like I believe George Washington was the first president of the United States. And he crossed the Delaware because I saw a picture of that. And, and he lived to so many ages, died at this particular age because that's what they told me. And, and Abraham Lincoln gave the Gettysburg Address because I read that and other people told me that. I believe all those facts, but they have absolutely no impact in my life. It's not a mental assent to facts. It's an actual acceptance of the reality that you and I are broken, that you and I are sinful, that you and I are in desperate need of a Savior, that there's nothing I can do and you can do to come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ on our own. It's a gift that is given to me that was paid for by the blood of his Son. So God, who is a God of love, and God, who is a God of justice, said, I love Steve, but because Steve has sinned, I cannot have a fellowship relationship with Steve, but I still love him and want that to happen because Steve has committed sins that have to be forgiven. And the only way Steve can do enough to have those sins atoned for is to spend eternity separated from me in hell. But I love him so much that I'm going to provide a way that cost me, God, the most important thing in my life. I'm going to let my son come down. I'm going to clothe him with flesh. I'm going to let him experience everything that Steve experienced, but he lived a, a sinless life. I'm going to put him on the cross. I'm going to let the whole world be blanketed with darkness for three hours while I pour my wrath out on my son. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's not for anybody to see, but just me and my son. And at the end of that, when the penalty for my sins and your sins are atoned for, Jesus said, it is finished. It is done to telestai, paid in full. And by my acceptance of Christ's sacrifice into my life, I have entrance into his kingdom. So what's required of me? What is required of you? Repentance. It's always been repentance. Lord, I am, I am so sorry for rejecting you most of my life. I'm so sorry for the sins that I've committed. I'm so sorry for going my own way. I'm so sorry for violating this trust-love relationship that you've had with me. Will you forgive me for those sins? And the answer is absolutely. God always forgives. I may not forgive you. You may not forgive you but God always forgives. I believe the Lord Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I believe he died on the cross for my sins. I believe he was raised. I believe he's sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding for me. I believe he's going to come again someday, soon, and he's going to set up his kingdom. God, I don't want to be part of that kingdom. I want to be part of the, the, the family of God. I, I want to be a son or a daughter of yours. I accept I accept what Christ has done for me on the cross. And I ask you to come into my life and take control of my life. And from this day forward, 
I will live as a child of the king. The simple prayer, but you have to mean it in your heart. You have to understand it in your heart. And I have learned in my own spiritual life, which has been a series of ups and downs, the greatest sins I've ever committed have been since I've known Christ, because I knew what I was doing and yet did it anyway. And every time that I would punish myself by not asking for repentance, maybe I'll just go two weeks without praying, and then maybe, you know, I've, I've paid enough. Every time I've gone an inch, he's gone a mile. Have you noticed? He's always there to engulf us and love us and like we do our own children. If you have never received the Lord Jesus Christ into your heart and life, if you are not his, if the Holy Spirit has not taken up residence in you, that all can change today. Today, all it takes is a simple confession of your sins, an acceptance of the reality of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the simple asking in faith for him to come into your life, and he will. He will. I can personally testify to that because uh, he did in my life. But I do want to warn you that I asked the Lord to come into my life, and I've shared this with you before, 200 times. From the time I was 15 to the time I was 28, I probably said the, the sinner's prayer 200 times, and his answer to me was always no. Do you know why? Because I wanted him on my terms. I call the shots. Lord, I want you to come into my life and make my life better, but I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to, I'm going to live the way I want to live. You just kind of get me out of the jams I'm in because I'm king, I'm sovereign. This is my kingdom, and I'm asking you to empower me to live in my kingdom. And his response was, that's not what I do. It's my kingdom, he says, and I'm granting you entrance into my kingdom where I am king. And if you accept him on his terms, which is all or nothing, will you mess up? Promise you, you will before you get home today. But we have the forgiveness of sins and the confession that, that changes all of that. If you do not know him and you would like to know the incredible, powerful, life-changing, eternal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm going to ask you to just to pray that prayer with me today. Just close your eyes, everyone if you would, nobody looking around. And if this is you, just simply pray this. And by the way, if you already know the Lord, pray for some people in here that maybe don't. Say, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. I have messed up my life royally. That I believe you are loving. I believe you are God. And I repent of everything I have done that has hurt you and hurt me and hurt others. Will you forgive me of my sins? I surrender my life to you now. Will you come into my life? Will you take control of my life? Would you center my life on you? And to the best of my ability, I want to live for you, my King. Father, thank you for saving me, for hearing my prayers. And to the best of my ability, I want to live for your righteousness for this day forward. In Jesus' name I pray.
Amen. There is no reason for any of us to miss out on what he has in store for us in his kingdom by simply not knowing him or thinking that we do or acting like we do when we really don't. Amen? Let me pray.